Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm the ghost of Hogwatch Past. Joining me is Liz, the ghost of Hogwatch Future. You can't see it on the podcast, but I'm pointing to a grave marked Ebenezer Dibbler. And our special guest, Gen. It's pronounced snack time. (laughs) (laughs) So glad to have you on the show. Uh, Anything you'd like to tell us about yourself? Oh, sure. I mean, relevant to the podcast, first of all, I'm a huge Terry Pratchett and Discworld fan. I've read every single book over the course of, well, since high school. I'm a voice actor, first and foremost, and I do voice of all as the uh, narrator and producer and all that. Uh, If you ever want to listen to the magic story for Magic the Gathering, that's where you can find it. The whole dang thing from Magic Origins onward. Our book this month is Hogfather, the story that looks at the nightmare before Christmas and says, I'm you, but British. (laughs) Liz, you've probably been exposed to like a lot of hype about this one, right? Any expectations you had going in? I knew surprisingly little. I knew who the Hogfather was as like a character in a very like vague concept. But I think when I was learning about the Hogfather, I was also just starting to get into my brother, my brother and me. And so I think I thought it had something to do with Candle Nights. <laughs> so <laughs> I have uh, had that set straight for me at this point. No McElroys in this book. No. <laughs> I mean, we stopped doing the casting call like many episodes ago, but they would probably be really good as the beggars. <laughs> oh, for uh-huh. sure. They'd, they'd fit this, the banter in this book perfectly. Uh, so again, uh, when did you last read this one? Honestly, I want to say it was like 15 years ago. I'm sure I refreshed on it at some point, but this is the second Discworld book I ever read after Reaper Man, and reading through it again, I was amazed just how much of it stuck with my vocabulary (laughs) over the years. Yeah, I think it's been, for me, like just under 10 years. I think I read this first when I went to college, right around 2011. There was a lot of stuff that I completely forgot about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple things. I think part of that is that while I did read the book, at one point, uh, most of my memory of it comes from the movie. Because yeah. I've watched that several <laughs> times. I have watched that, I want to say, twice since like college or so. It was interesting seeing what got left out. We have a lot to cover, so let's jump right into the trivia section, as written in the snow by the Secret Extra Sister. Published in October 1996 and coming in at 104,000 words, Hogfather is the 20th Discworld novel and the fourth in the Death series. It was translated into German in 1998, Dutch in 2000, French in 2002, and Spanish in 2008. The 1999 audiobook, read by Nigel Planer, lasts 9 hours and 45 minutes, with the Tony Robinson abridged version released in 2000 coming in at 3 hours. In its first week of publication, Hogfather rose to the top of the UK bestseller list. It was a runner-up for the 1997 Derleth Award and placed 137th on the 2004 Big Read survey. The text was republished along with Pyramids and Small Gods in an omnibus titled The Gods Trilogy released in 2000. And of course, in 2006, the story was adapted into a TV movie starring Michelle Dockery and Ian Richardson. We open in Ankh-Morpork, the greatest city of the Discworld, and focus on one of the city's proudest institutions, the Guild of Assassins. Lord Downey, head of the Guild, 
looks up from his desk to see a specter floating in the air. This is one of the auditors of reality, and a rare recurring villain in the Discworld books. We met them briefly in Reaper Man, but they were largely ancillary to that plot, and this story gives them a much bigger role. For a quick explanation, they are basically representatives of the order of the universe, making sure that reality is functioning, and they dislike organic life because it's chaotic and prone to things like imagination. <laughs> They're a good villain. Very... It's, it's nice to have a faceless villain that you can just throw into any book. <laughs> the Discworld books always do fun things with like the typography in it. And I like mm. how the auditors come up in the book because they don't get any quotation marks. They're just like, it reads like prose, except they're talking to one, uh, one another. And it's just very strange. As, as a narrator myself, it's extremely weird to read. Like, I can't. I don't think this works properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, we're like so trained to read dialogue in a certain way that it just kind of like you have to override that instinct of it. Yeah, it definitely does sell them as being sort of instruments of the fundamental nature of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. The prose itself that weaves the story. The auditors have come to Lord Downey with three million dollars and a target. They want someone deleted. Someone very famous and difficult to put down. The auditor's target is none other than the Discworld equivalent of Santa Claus, the Hogfather. That's the hook for this story, is that somebody wants Santa assassinated. <laughs> Kidnap the Sandy Claus, kill him really fast. <laughs> <laughs> to fulfill the contract, Lord Downey sends for one of the guild's most eccentric members... Mr. Jonathan Tia Taime. The young assassin is eager to make up for the faux pas he committed in horrifically butchering his last target's entire household. And to Lord Downey's surprise, he already has a plan. That's uh, the sniper from TF2. Have a plan to kill everyone you meet. There is speculation that Tia Taime's name is a reference to the Douglas Adams book The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul which also posits that gods fade and lose power when people stop believing in them. What do you think of Tea Time? I think he'd be very upset with you for saying the name like that. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the first introduction we get to him in this book is like, he seems a little odd, but mostly normal. And in the like farther we get into the book, the more like disconcerting he seems. Yeah, as they said in the the very like the very first time the uh, Lord Downey talks to him or thinks about him the, in the prose, uh, he doesn't think of people as anything other than objects. They're just there and in the way, and it becomes more and more apparent mm -hmm. as the as the book goes on that none none of these people matter. They they're they're just there to be used and thrown off when no longer necessary. Having having his own conversation with the world, and no one else is invited. Yeah, it kind of feels like we never get to really see or understand his like view of things. Like his motivation, I think, in the entire book is like very, very vague. I actually have a personal theory about what he actually wants deep down, but we'll get mm -hmm. to that probably near the end. But yeah, he is low empathy, the way that the Mariana Trench is low altitude. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
He does kind of have that uh, Hannibal Lecter vibe of cordial monstrosity. And I kind of feel that he's very much an embodiment of how a society steeped in injustice will tolerate absolutely horrible things if they are presented in a respectable manner. It's kind of the culmination of what the Assassin's Guild is in certain respects. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. He's still in it despite murdering a ton of people unrelated to the assassination itself, which is already a problem Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that they're fine with the assassinations in the first place. But it's just a faux pas to be murdering random folks. Mm -hmm. If you just let that keep going, this is (laughs) what happens. Yeah, but they don't have a system for expelling him, basically. Yeah, it's like they said that there's nothing in the rules against it. A weird interpretation of the Air Bud Clause, but... (laughs) (laughs) From the Guild, we turn our attention a few streets away to the Unseen University Academy of Magic. Arch-Chancellor Mustrum Ridcully has ordered Modo, the university handy dwarf, to remove the boards blocking off the private bathroom that a previous Arch-Chancellor had commissioned from the notorious inventor Bloody Stupid Johnson. Ah, Bloody Stupid Johnson. <laughs> For those who missed the episode not too long ago where we talked about Mr. Johnson, he his presence in the series is pretty much restricted to the things he left behind, all of which are decidedly off-kilter and best observed from another universe. <laughs> he, li- he, likes to, he likes to be bold with his inventions. Mm-hmm. Safety's really a secondary concern. (laughs) Yeah. Safety sixth at best. (laughs) As they mention, the uh, potato peeler in the kitchen was created for nails, a manicure device, yeah. (laughs) I imagine it would remove a lot of of hand-adjacent material. Hmm. The way that peeling potatoes works, I wouldn't be surprised if that included the wrist. Elsewhere in Angmore Pork, we meet the hero of our story. Returning from soul music, it's Susan Stohelet, heir apparent to the Duchy of Stohelet and adopted granddaughter of Death. Since we last saw her, she has graduated from school and taken a job as a governess, looking after the Gittier children, Twyla and Gawain. Oh, Susan has become goth Mary Poppins. (laughs) (laughs) She very much has. Susan's character is sort of best encapsulated by her introduction, where Twyla approaches her with a fear of the boogeyman in the basement. So Susan takes a poker from the fireplace and beats up the monster. I I very much appreciate the uh, parents' friends in this situation, (laughs) where they see her going to do this, and they're like, Ah, yes, show the children no fear. There's nothing down there, nothing at all. Very realistic how the poker was bent up and the screaming. (laughs) Yeah. I did appreciate the guy who was just like, oh, yeah, I get it. Just telling the kid there's nothing down there isn't going to help. So just, like, pretend to go fight the monster. Brilliant. And it's just like, I'm not entirely sure what I just heard, but I'm going to pretend like nothing happened. (laughs) It's like how the adults react to death himself. They just kind of pretend he is a real person and block out the fact that he's a seven-foot-tall skeleton. (laughs) Yep. Ignore the things that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. That's very fundamental to this story, actually. I also want to talk a little bit about the kids. Apart from being examples of how white people have been giving their children stupid names for decades, uh, Twyla and Gawain are somewhat anemic characters themselves, but they're very relevant to the book's overall theme of childhood and the difference between perception and reality. Yeah, I honestly felt, for the most part, they were there just to help 
set Susan up as a character, accessories to the way that she was portrayed. Yeah, I kind of had a feeling like early on in the book that maybe they were going to be like her sidekicks in the book and her job is going to be escorting them through whatever adventure is happening. And then they very quickly disappear. Not completely, but yeah, they're barely present. Yeah. But do we think that the book would have been stronger if they would have, were a central part of it? Because mm. there's not a whole lot that they could reasonably contribute. I agree. I don't really think that they're they're super necessary to what goes forward. Yeah, I, I thought I was kind of going to go in a direction where uh, it focuses more on like how children perceive the world, I guess. And so Twyla and Gawain would be like the way that that's communicated to the plot. Now, if I were to build a story like that, I might have like uh, had them go visit the Tooth Fairy, for example, and learn about all all the things about boogeymen and everything. Uh, not to jump too far ahead there. <laughs> but it, it would be a very different adventure, I feel. In a dark, dingy corner of the city, which can describe basically any part of Ankh-Morpork, Mr. Teatime recruits a crew to assist with his plan. This team consists of the down-on-his-luck wizard Sidney, the venerated locksmith Mr. Brown, and an assortment of ruffians, most notably the Lily White Boys, Medium Dave, and his enormous brother, Banjo. Banjo reminds me more than anything of Lenny from Of Mice and Men, the whole big guy, kid brain thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember enough about that story to make any sort of <laughs> meaningful comparison. Same here, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. But he definitely fits into that, like, archetype of a character. And according to the L-Space annotations, their name is a reference to the traditional English folk song, Green Grow the Rushes O, which is sometimes sung as a Christmas carol. That makes sense. Two to the Lily White Boys. We don't learn Mr. Teatime's plan until later, but we do watch him punch out one of Banjo's teeth. Later that night, Banjo is asleep with the tooth under his pillow. And a tooth fairy comes to collect it. Uh, note the use of A there. On the Discworld, Tooth Fairy is a franchise operation, with many people employed to collect children's teeth and leave money under their pillows. This particular tooth fairy is named Violet, and almost as soon as she arrives, she is kidnapped by Mr. Teatime's crew. Makes sense. Tooth Fairy is an all-the-time sort of gig. Not, not just a once-a-year thing like Mr. Hogfather over here. <laughs> With Violet in tow, the villains find Ernie, the tooth collections agent. Mr. Teatime coerces Ernie into showing them where he delivers the teeth. Teeth, 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 teeth. Anyway. <laughs> as soon as he has what he needs, the assassin stabs Ernie and leaves him for dead. As Ernie bleeds out, the auditors marvel at Teatime's plan, although we still don't know quite what it is. When death arrives for Ernie... He is uncharacteristically distracted, and the uh, auditors reassure themselves that, even if he has figured it out, the assassin is in a place where death can't go. <laughs> Soon enough, it is the night before Hogswatch, and a trap ensures that at least one mouse is definitely not stirring. The death of rats comes to collect its soul and investigate the holiday decorations, but watches someone emerge from the chimney and squeaks in astonishment. Always good to see the death of rats. A sweet boy. Mm -hmm. Yes. It feels like he pops up less in this one than he did in the last book. He was still present through a lot of it, but yeah, you're probably right. 
he didn't really need to be in as much of it because the last time, a large part of it was getting Susan through all of everything. Mm-hmm. And this, in this one, she's a lot more capable than she was as a like eight year old or whatever, however old she was. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, she's got an idea about how this works now. If I'm honest, I feel like the death of rats is only here because Susan's here. Entirely mm-hmm. possible, yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like the Death of Rats has a lot to do in the story, period. Other than nibble the occasional cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Along with its talking raven interpreter, the Death of Rats finds Susan, and together, they try to explain to her what's happening. Good old Quoth. I don't think he's actually named in this Mm -mm, book. I don't think so. But I'm pretty certain that's his name. Susan doesn't listen to either of them until her grandfather arrives, dressed as the Hogfather, and, together with his manservant, Albert, cryptically explains what has happened. The Hogfather is functionally dead, and if people don't believe in him, the sun will not rise. A brief explanation for those keeping score at home. On the Discworld, belief is a sort of cosmic power. If everybody thinks the same way, then the universe will conform to their expectations. This is what empowers the gods and gives death his shape. And, as paradigms shift, the things born from belief might lose their power. Unless, of course, they can change with the times. Humans are Warhammer 40,000 orcs. Got it. As Death returns to hogfathering, Susan resolves to figure out what's happening. She calls for Death's horse, Binky, and he brings Susan to her grandfather's estate, the all-black realm outside the normal universe, where the death of rats and the raven provides some more exposition. The hogfather is a new iteration of an ancient god, the center of many vague mythic notions about winter and the coming of the new year. Which lines up a lot with uh, Santa Claus here, namely in that the uh, holiday where Santa Claus and Christmas in general were kind of tacked on on top of other winter traditions when Christianity moved into new areas. Yeah, that's like something I really like about this book is the like layering that happens, both with like the Hogfather specifically, but also it kind of feels like the plot. Everything's happening on multiple levels. The whole concept of it going from hunting down a pig to start the new year to multiple layers of the telephone game, basically, until you have a man in a red robe delivering presents. Yeah. Back in Unseen University, Arch-Chancellor Ridcully is making use of his splendid new bathroom when he catches a tiny man creeping along the floor. This being introduces himself as the Veruca Gnome. Ridcully is a little confused. Like all magically inclined people on the disc, he can see things that most folks convince themselves aren't real, like tooth fairies and boogeymen. But he's never seen a Veruca Gnome before. And apparently the creature doesn't remember existing until recently. Death, having expressly forbidden Susan from getting involved, gets back to Hogfather duties. At Albert's suggestion, he decides to make an appearance at a major shopping center. This is probably the most beloved scene from the story, if not the series, <laughs> with Death mm-hmm. as the mall Santa. It is very strong. Yeah. Probably don't need to like reiterate for folks what happens in here. It's been very well documented in different comics and things. <laughs> but if they were to look it up, that would be a very important lesson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many folks don't know that that's from Discworld. 
have enjoyed it. I take a guess it's probably a few because, like I mentioned earlier, I had no idea that the Hogfather is connected to Discworld in any sort of way when I first learned about him. I remember recently there's a comic that I saw floating around Tumblr and Twitter. Had you seen that one before this, specifically of this section? I think that's the one I was talking about, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it. We'll have to show you later. <laughs> yes. While that's going on, the Arch-Chancellor and the rest of the faculty soon discover that more creatures are suddenly popping into existence, including a pixie that causes baldness and a beast that eats socks. Here, I really like kind of the revival of the idea that happened in small gods where basically old gods who've kind of faded away will pop up to inhabit new roles when there's enough belief in them. Except this way, it's a slightly more comedic tone and a little less, like, horrific. Except in Small Gods, it really was more like, here is a finite amount of a resource, mm -hmm. and it can be stolen by these specific gods. Whereas here, anything can grab hold of it. Mm -hmm. You want to say a word and think about it for, like, five seconds? Great, it's real now. Good job. Mm -hmm. To some extent, there needs to be some sort of consensus. It's like the collective belief of the wizards believing in whatever mon monster they're conjuring up next is enough to like pop it into existence. But just one of them believing it and being shut down by the others is like, okay, not that one. <laughs> well, I think that when the dean suggests the brings bags of money goblin, he doesn't actually believe in it. He's just hoping that it happens to work that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I think uh, what might be an interesting contrast with Small Gods, and forgive us, anyone who missed that episode slash book, this is an instance of a, I guess, market boom of belief. Mm -hmm. Yes. Really more of a market bubble. The youngest and most scientifically minded member of the staff, Ponder Stibbins, suggests that they bring the problem to Hex, the thinking machine that he and some of the students have been developing over the past several books. Pratchett's love of both computers and puns is in full force with X. Mm -hmm. uh, notably, there's the RAM skull for random access memory. It uses religious pictograms as icons. <laughs> and the fact that its processing is done through ants leads to someone putting an anthill inside sticker on it instead of Intel inside. <laughs> that one I did not get until my most recent viewing of the Hogfather movie last year. It's full of punes, or plays on words. Mm -hmm. Hex calculates that the entities such as the Veruca Gnome and the Sock Eater are creatures born of belief, much like gods and other beings responsible for various aspects of life. The reason they are manifesting now is because there's a lot of ambient belief around, since the Hogfather has disappeared, although the wizards don't know that yet. Elsewhere... The wizard side me is repulsed by the dirty business that Mr. Teatine is making them do, but he's too terrified of the assassin to either stand up to him or run away. The other ruffians are also freaked out, mostly of Mr. Teatime, but also because there's strange noises and shadows that seem to be moving in the very walls of this mysterious tower. This is where it starts to pop up in the book, like moments that are like genuinely scary oh yeah like we'll get to it later but there's one moment in particular that i'm thinking of that is just like oh my god why is that here <laughs> oh yeah well it says in the book most stories <laughs> are in the end about blood yeah so after the suggestion of the death of rats and the raven susan ventures to the hogfather's palace of bone 
a castle of ice at the hub, which is the center of the disk and the closest that a flat planet gets to having a north pole. Or any pole, really. She doesn't uncover any useful clues, but she does find Bilius, the O-God of hangovers. She drags him out of the castle just before it collapses around them. Back in the mall, the owner has called in the watch to arrest the imposter Hogfather, and who should report to the scene but Corporal Nobby Nobbs and Constable Visit. Nobby, noted in the watch series for being selfish and repulsive, decides that this is a great opportunity for revenge by proxy for all of the times that the Hogfather abandoned his Nobby's stocking. But when he reaches the front of the line, he is spellbound, reduced to a state of childlike innocence, and receives a gift of a brand new, ultra-expensive crossbow. I'll be honest, I don't remember Constable Visit all that much. Like, of members of the Watch? I don't remember that one. <laughs> Constable Visit the Infidel with Explanatory Pamphlets, known as Washpot to his colleagues. To be fair, I think in Feet of Clay he gets maybe, like... Three or four lines. So. And about the same here. I, I, I really enjoy that they, they went full out with Nobby's return to childhood here with just the same very tiny. Yes. <laughs> it's Thank so you. good. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my like favorite parts of this book with the uh, typography because it is like half the font size of the normal text. <laughs> it feels so small. Uh-huh. Frankly, I was surprised that, even the first time I read this, that it didn't include a reference to a Christmas story. Tell me you can't imagine somebody telling Nobby, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, and him replying, somebody's eye anyway. Like, it writes itself. <laughs> totally could. <laughs> that is a much more, like, American Christmas movie, though. <laughs> I w I'm not too surprised that Sir Terry Pratchett didn't go for it. No, that's a fair point. I've never seen a, a Christmas story, so that is... Me neither, actually. Yeah, this is not like one that's like I have any cultural connection to. I've seen maybe half of it, but like the you'll shoot your eye out bit with the BB gun is a very famous scene. It is. Especially because of the whole exchange with the mall Santa. It, it would fit here. Mm -hmm. It really would. Now having some context where it's like, oh yeah. Pleased with his public appearance, death is unusually jolly, until Albert tells him that he has work to do. Scythe work. There's a little match girl about to get the full Hans Christian Andersen experience, <laughs> and Albert says that this is as much part of the Hogs Watch tradition as gift-giving. But Death refuses to reap the girl, and fills up her Lifetimer, a magic hourglass that measures how much life a person has left to live. It's against the rules for Death to give life, but tonight, he's the Hogfather, and Albert, Susan, and probably the reader are wondering how much he wants it to stay that way. I really appreciate Albert going into here the how, how this is important because people need to appreciate what they have, and doing so by comparing to someone who's got it worse. And it's not, it's not a system that needs to be in place, but it's definitely a thing that people do. Yeah, it's here it's kind of Death and Albert are contrasting ideas about like how the world should be. Albert's kind of like, mm -hmm. this is the way it is, just suck it up and deal with it. And Death is like, no, it should be different. It should be better. I'm in charge, Hal. I'm doing it better. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of on Death's <laughs> side. But at the same time, like Death 
can't really abandon his role because it's also his self. It's just kind of like he has this hope of how things could be different. I personally empathize. What does it say about the actual Hogfather that he's a magic being capable of doing this sort of thing, but doesn't? He has access to some greater like secret of the universe, or is he more or less restricted to the plausible deniability? <laughs> because you don't really have to believe in things that are evident, and him just giving extravagant gifts that couldn't be from your parents means that you don't have that little bit of doubt that is what makes belief a actual thing rather than just an understanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's definitely an interesting way to think about it. It's we don't get to like really see a whole lot of the Hogfather, understandably. He's kind of dead at this point in the book. But like what we see of the other gods in Discworld, they're just like so apathetic to humankind that it I don't know, feels a little cold. <laughs> Susan brings Bilius to Unseen University so that the wizards can cure the O-God's hangover. After some reckless experimentation, they succeed! But sadly, he doesn't know any more about the Hogfather's disappearance than she does. Apart from a vague recollection of teeth, 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 teeth. (laughs) With nothing else to go on, Susan investigates Violet the Tooth Fairy's apartment, and from there, Banjo's room in the YMPA. Susan stops back at Death's house to retrieve Violet's autobiography, one of the books that write down everything that happens to a person as it happens. She uses it to figure out that Violet has been taken to a place much like Death's realm, a world outside the normal universe, the world of child's imagination, depicted in crayon drawings where the sky is up, the grass and trees are green, and there's one house with big square windows and a red triangle roof. Grabbing her grandfather's backup weapon, a nearly invisible sword, Susan and Bilius head out. Bilius is a weird one. Like, like he's a very strong, evident example of what's going on with the Hogfather and everything, but he's very clearly, like, only tagging along for additional comic relief. Yeah. Because he's already served his non-purpose. As a, as, as a god, though, it is an interesting concept. You have this god of, of wine and partying. Well, here's the negative god. The one that has to deal with that. Although, really, I could see someone making offerings to appease the god of hangovers, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's never a thing with the, the party gods, if there ever is one, of them cleaning up after the party and having to deal with the messy bits. Somehow they just keep partying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the party don't stop. <laughs> I do think Bilius provides like a nice foil to Susan, at least, because Susan, for the most part, has a very like strong understanding of what's going on, or at least she thinks she does. And Bilius is very much like a child. There's very little that he knows about how the world works. And he's just kind of along for the ride. And he at least provides somebody for Susan to talk to. So we're not just hearing her inner thoughts all the time. That's true. Meanwhile, Death has a few more vignettes about confronting the difference between what Hog's Watch should be versus what it is, including rescuing a peasant from a king's self-centered generosity, swapping some beggar's dinner of boots with the food from a fancy restaurant, and giving a poor child an abundance of presents. Albert makes mention of growing up poor and not getting a toy horse that he had wanted. 
instead receiving a hand-carved one from his father. When Death assumes that the handmade gift was better, Albert says that's adult logic. Children can be selfish little brats. Mm. It's like, <laughs> I'll admit I probably was, no, I definitely was as a kid. <laughs> Kids lack the perspective to know better. Like how a baby cries at everything because any inconvenience can be the worst thing that has ever happened to them. You're a kid. You don't know what your parents have to do, how much money they have. And I do appreciate their the, the discussion here of, like, self-centered generosity and capitalism really making this sort of thing end up being uh, you get what your parents are able to give you, and it's not really f actually fair. Yeah. And death is fair. That's part of his whole shtick, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And the concept of inequality is kind of baffling to him. Yeah, and, and, and they really don't resolve this, I don't feel like. Yeah, um, kind of. He doesn't stick in the role long enough for it, but I, I do appreciate the discussion, the opening up the thoughts for the reader. Yeah. I think there is a certain amount of resolution in his speech at the end, which we'll probably talk about when we get to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Susan and Bilius arrive in the Tooth Fairy's realm, and struggle to get their bearings on a land where the sky doesn't form a horizon and the water is blue instead of clear. But eventually they find the house and step through its front doors into a vast white tower. At the center, they discover a giant pile of teeth with a magic circle drawn around them and they figure out the plan. Well, Susan figures out the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They figure out the plan, and Bilius is also present. <laughs> and the plan is teeth, 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 This is one of those scenes that I was talking about where I was like, why is this here? This is horrifying. It's very dark for Discworld, uh, it's true. Discworld's always kind of been a little dark at least. Oh, for sure. This just feels like very in your face. There's something more visceral and human about this. Like, uh, a big monster that might eat us? Yeah, okay, sure, whatever. A pile of the things in my mouth? Hmm. <laughs> it's like, that shouldn't be like that. That's not where that goes. No. <laughs> As an explanation, it was mentioned at several parts in the story that there's ancient magic to control a person using part of their body, such as a lock of hair, some nail clippings, or a tooth. Now, gods fade away when people stop believing in them. So, Teatime's plan is to magically stop the children of the world from believing in the Hogfather, thereby making him cease to exist. And, if he already has his, the magic circle and everything, why stop there? Mm -hmm. If you could control everyone in the world, why not? Meanwhile, something has been picking off Teatime's hired goons one by one, manifesting their childhood fears and sending them somewhere else, in heavy air quotes. Mm -hmm. By the time Medium Dave catches Susan and Bilius as they free the captured Violet, he's a bundle of nerves. I really enjoy the various monsters that they've brought up to scare off all of the other the other guys. Mm -hmm. This is a section where it kind of turns into a slasher movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> Their own personal slasher movie. 
We can't say they didn't deserve it, but, you know. Yeah. Nobody really deserves what happens to them. I do like the idea that, like, your childhood fears, like, stick with you in a very, like, primal way. In the way that uh, a simple smell can bring you back to a particular book or a, a, a cookie you ate once. You know, that your, that your parents made for you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like they may have grown up, but whatever part of themselves is afraid has not. One guy was scared of the dark. He was famed for not being scared of the dark because he overcompensated. Yeah. <laughs> but this dark is different. It was kind of a blinking you'll miss it line, but the explanation for why he was afraid of the dark was just like, in an exchange, our parents would beat us if we tried to get into the cellar. And it's like, oh yeah, well, my parents would beat us if we tried to get out. He's like, oh, oh, no. And I felt really bad for him. Yeah. Medium Dave brings the three of them up to meet Mr. Teotime, who has been fascinated by a special locked room at the top of the tower. The assassin confiscates Death's sword from Susan and talks about his master plan to kill the Hogfather. Banjo, who was never told that's what's going on, is outraged. Teotime tries to trick Banjo into hurting Susan, but the mysterious presence that has been hunting the goons manifests as Ma Lilywhite to dispatch Medium Dave and reduce Banjo to tears. Mom said don't hit girls. Susan attacks Teitime, but as her experience with combat is largely restricted to ambushing monsters that weren't expecting her, she's not prepared to deal with a trained assassin. He tries to use Death's sword on her, but it doesn't work in a world without dying and she eventually manages to knock him over the railing, and he falls to the bottom of the tower. There's something kind of poetic about the idea that this tower kind of reduces everybody to, like, their most childlike selves, but because she's a babysitter, she just needs to be herself, Mm -hmm. and that's, like, her strength. And we also did see in soul music that she's always been kind of mentally around 50. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, out of curiosity, Susan opens the door at the top of the Tooth Fairy's tower and discovers that the original Tooth Fairy is actually a boogeyman. The first boogeyman. The very essence of primal fear. The darkness from before humans mastered fire. It explains that as times changed, it grew fond of children and started taking their old teeth as a way to protect them and leaving money because otherwise that would be stealing, which is wrong. The whole institution of the Tooth Fairy franchise sort of grew up around them and has become largely self-sustaining at this point. Now the Boogeyman has used up too much of its power dispatching the goons and it fades away. But yeah, the Boogeyman growing fond of humans just because even if its entire purpose was to scare them, spending that much time around somebody, you kind of grow fond of them. Very Mm -hmm. similar to what Death is going through in all of his books. Spend too long next to humanity and uh, you start to become attached to them. We're like puppies like that. (laughs) It is mentioned at one point that observation is a two-way street. Death has taken on certain more and more human aspects and so is the Boogeyman. Mm Mm-hmm. It mirrors how the boogeyman is not like a god in the literal sense that a lot of the other ones are, but they've all needed to evolve to like stay relevant. Susan, recognizing that Banjo is fundamentally a good kid in a large man's body, conscripts him to take over for the Tooth Fairy, and she assigns Violet and Bilius to assist him. With that, she returns to the normal world. Now that Banjo is the Tooth Fairy, slash the first boogeyman, effectively, I do want to see him once he comes into his own power and becomes just absolutely terrifying. (laughs) 
Well, he doesn't believe that he's the Tooth Fairy, right? He just thinks he's doing the Tooth Fairy's job until she comes back. So maybe he wouldn't really notice the power. He wouldn't wield it. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. But he is also like a seven foot tall man. He is unintentionally scary in the first place, just on looking at him, which very much fits the bill of the the boogeyman tooth fairy here. They're scary when you stare at them, (laughs) but they're just here to take care of you and trade your teeth for money. It's okay. Yeah. Just sell your body parts. Buy yourself something (laughs) nice. (laughs) Meanwhile, over at Unseen University, Mr. Teatime has fallen out of the Tooth Fairy's realm and into the middle of the Midnight Banquet. Not knowing who he is and what he's done, the wizards save his life, and he immediately slashes his way out with the re-empowered sword. Susan is eager for bed, but death stops her. They've thwarted Teatime's plan, but the Hogfather is still vulnerable, and the auditors are making a direct attempt on his life. He brings her to a snowy forest, where, having taken the form of wolves, they are chasing the pig that was hunted in the winter solstice tradition. Susan is able to fend them off, and the auditors, now trapped in mortal bodies, soon succumb to death. And he does a little bit of a frosty impression there. <laughs> <laughs> this entire scene is like very, I kind of was wanting to say strange, but it's not strange as in like there's something wrong with it. It just like has a very different vibe and it feels very like like ethereal in kind of a way. It's it's surreal in the most literal sense. Uh-huh, yeah. It's, it is on top of reality. And at the same time, I think it also kind of fits the pace of what the rest of the book has been, because it's been kind of breakneck throughout the whole plot. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, it's almost like the whole rest of the story of all the like satire and bits about belief and gods and teeth and whatever. It's all been stripped away to reveal just what it has been about the entire time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is very appropriate for what is happening in the actual plot. Yeah, and like the imagery is super great too. And the lines, like death threatening them with the scythe and saying, now have you been naughty or nice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Hogfather rescued, Death and Susan have a conversation about what actually would have happened if they had failed. The sun would not have risen, not because it would have stopped moving or the world would be physically different. Rather, humanity would have been changed in such a way that nobody would think of it as the sun. Uh, People would lose the ability to sort of assign meaning to the world. And as such, it wouldn't really be people anymore. At least that's my interpretation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're pretty spot on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And this is actually, I think, where Death figures out how to reconcile his whole thing about this is not how it should be versus Albert saying this is how it is. You do have to create things like mercy and justice and duty. As such, it is the responsibility of of beings capable of understanding the world and changing it to pursue those things that we value, mm-hmm. to reject just nihilistic observation of reality in favor of progressive ambition, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things won't be better until you make them so. Yeah. And I think that provides like a lot of clarity to the idea of like why Susan had to be the one to save the Hogfather directly, why death could not do it. This this whole section stuck with me very strongly as a kid. Mm. <laughs> I, I just gotta say, <laughs> between this and Reaper Man, uh, death was a big, I want to say, influence on my spirituality when I was a kid. These things such as justice and mercy and truth, they aren't real, but you gotta make them real. So do your best in the world. 
So, their job done, Death brings Susan back to the Geetir house, only to find Teatime waiting for them. He threatens to kill Death with his own sword, and tries to get Twyla and Gawain to side with him, but they recognize him as the more monstrous of the two. So, when Susan throws her monster-slaying poker, it passes right through Death and pierces Teatime in the heart. Death takes the assassin away, soul and body, leaving Susan to enjoy her hog's watch. Before he returns to his realm, he makes a pit stop back in time to purchase the toy horse for Albert and wish a happy hog's watch to the world. So that was Hogfather. Liz, what did you think going through this the first time? There's so much that happens in this book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it, like, it doesn't ever feel like it's a jumbled mess. It's like a clockwork where you have all these pieces moving independent of each other, but they're all contributing to this larger whole that when you can finally like see the big picture, it's like, oh, I get it. And again, uh, coming back to it, what did you think? So it's been several years since I've gotten to read uh, any any Pratchett book, and it was it's it's fun to see how much any and every single character in this book can get distracted. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no one in this story is immune from the conversation just going off into somewhere else, even if the situation is dire and there are important things going on. Like, we're trying to figure out why gods are popping up in the middle of nowhere. No, we're going to talk about bananas and how they're actually a kind of fish. <laughs> and actually, is apparently a reference to the argument that since the banana tree isn't made of actual wood, bananas themselves should be considered an herb rather than a fruit. <laughs> really? Yeah. I had not heard that one. That's delightful. So, apparently, biological classification is an extended and formalized version of the is a hot dog a sandwich debate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Susan accuses Mr. Teatime of being a thief, and he says, I would be the kind who steals fire from the gods. She says, we've already got fire. And he says, there must be an upgrade by now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it feels very, like human and very real like it's not overly perfected where that would have gotten stripped out in a much like prettier less funny book absolutely like there were parts of it where i was rereading it and thinking oh you know we probably could have cut like a couple of these and it would have been a much more streamlined mm -hmm. book but then it wouldn't have been a disc world yeah. book anymore it would have been a much more standard fantasy and not nearly as fun one specific one was Gwendoline the Cheerful Fairy. Ah. <laughs> uh, I completely forgot this character. <laughs> She's not really relevant. She doesn't do a whole lot in the story, but uh, two-thirds point, maybe three-quarters, she shows up as one of the things that has manifested as a result of people, like, imagining stuff. And she's basically, like, the counselor at every after-school program I was subjected to. <laughs> Along with her blue bird of happiness. Blue space bird. It's a chicken. <laughs> yeah, I did not remember her. Or the, um, the restaurant. I remembered the beggars. I had totally forgotten about the restaurant uh, selling <laughs> shoes. I, I did remember it once it came up in the story. Mm. That, like they through a combination of being able to present it in an appealing way and also just like some amount of rich people just emperor's new clothing mm -hmm. stuff of just mm -hmm. accepting mm -hmm. what is presented to them the old boots become a mega hit <laughs> yeah i do appreciate the shoe pastry pun <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> getting this far into the series it's 
making me feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of like not everything in my writing has to be like super efficient towards the conclusion of the book like it's okay to have these kind of diversions if they provide more context or a bit of levity or whatever it needs to to the story absolutely if it makes the whole better right yeah like we said bilious could be pretty easily extracted from the whole plot as could like the death of rats and the raven maybe not both i think you need one at least one of those people that susan talks to Mm -hmm. to get her going but if they weren't there then it wouldn't be as fun. There wouldn't be as as many interesting diversions that make the Discworld what it is. Let's see, some other things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Susan has a a running thing in this story where uh, she rejects manipulation, not just of herself, but like just she finds people phony, to borrow a term. Like, she scolds Twyla for acting too cute. Uh, She notices how Violet and Bilious behave around each other, trying to sort of be a little bit too appealing mm-hmm. and uh, she refuses to be frightened of the tooth fairy at the end at the same time this is something we touched on in soul music she wants to be normal but she doesn't seem to realize that the whole performative aspect is inherent to human behavior mm-hmm. these aren't separate things we are mask and wearer she really did inherit more than just the powers from her grandfather now we touched on it briefly death's monologue near the end is an absolute banger, but it's kind of a retread of the monologue from Dorfel back in Feet of Clay, using the same comparison of like grinding something down to its fundamental particles and trying to ascertain any sort of inequality that we view as inherent to certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Making the same point that... Uh, Some things we view as obvious are, in fact, a function of perception. The main difference is death's speech in here is a statement of purpose, a call to action, whereas Dorfell was making a declaration of self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Both absolutely have their place, but death's one has definitely overshadowed the other. Yeah, I I honestly don't remember the Feet of Clay bit at all, but the Hogfather one, that one stuck with me forever and a day. <laughs> yeah, and I think part of that can be attributed to, like, Death's persistence as a character. I think anybody who's read a Discworld book with Death in it knows Death. You know, they remember Death, but Gormholm... It does help that he's also in every book. Yeah. Plus, like... I feel like he, he's he's had more time to refine the thought mm-hmm. and just just the the delivery of the line is is excellent. Take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve. Like, come on. Yeah, that's like I said, absolute banger. If you don't mind, I actually have Dorfel's bit right here. Yeah, I'll go for it. We're not listening to you. You're not even really alive, said a priest. Dorfel nodded. This is fundamentally true, he said. See, he admits it. I suggest you take me and smash me and grind the bits to fragments and pound the fragments into powder and mill them again to the finest dust there can be, and I believe you will not find a single atom of life. True, let's do it. However, in order to test this fully, one of you must volunteer to undergo the same process. There was silence. It's like <laughs> I feel like the the feet of clay one is much more about not just statement of purpose from death, but statements of purpose for humanity. Whereas the other one is, does one have a soul? This is what does one do with that soul? Yeah, yeah. So I've been sort of building a trend of making a claim about what I 
feel is the thesis of each book. And this one, I think it's definitely about there's always discrepancy between how we imagine the world and what it actually is, if only because we as limited mortal beings cannot fully understand everything that exists, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think that is very much applied to childhood more than basically any other aspect of the human experience. And again, there's a recurring motif of defining stuff for other people as a mark of true villainy. Mr. Teatime is a top contender for the most evil villain we've had. Yeah. Also, I did want to say I have a vague half-formed theory about what he actually wants, and that's to be accepted. Because Susan makes a bunch of statements about him during their confrontation. She taunts him as being the weird kid, the one who didn't understand the difference between throwing rocks at a cat and lighting it on fire. And definitely he doesn't understand the world and he's tried to adopt the mannerisms of somebody who is accepted, hoping for that whole cargo cult thing of the function following the form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really what he wants is for people, especially kids, to like him. That's why he tries to get Gawain and Twyla on his side. Yeah, like I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because like I feel like a lot of this book focuses on people reflecting on their childhoods and being ostracized as a child is something that like really sticks with you. So it makes sense that if that was his experience growing up, he'd kind of try to cling on to that and make it possible, even if it meant doing something that was like super not okay. Mm -hmm. And personally, I think that's what he would have done if he'd been allowed to continue with the teeth is that he would have just made it so that everybody liked him. Probably he would have altered the world so that his attitude towards death and killing was accepted. And that probably would have had disastrous repercussions for society and just existence, but... Mm -hmm. Everything else was just icing on the cake. Yeah, you see the way that he responded when death pronounced his name correctly at the end, is that that was probably the first gesture of even basic decency that he was received from pretty much anyone in a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so important to get someone's name right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As someone whose name has never gotten right. So we're almost at the end, which means it's time for some thank yous. I want to say thanks to Willow Carter for our theme music, to everyone who backs us on Patreon, including this month's random shout-out, which goes to, let's see here, the Patreon shout-out goes to Robin. Thank you, Robin. If you enjoy the show or and want to talk with us more, you can join us on Discord. Uh, there's a, usually a link in the episode description, which goes out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a bunch of other places. Not yet Pandora, but I'm considering it. And I usually upload the episodes to my YouTube channel as well. Usually also share it on our Facebook page, Twitter, Tumblr. Oh, and of course, I want to thank both of you for joining me on this conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's been a blast. Yeah. Gen, where can you be found on the internet should you wish to be found? If y'all want to find me on Twitter is the best place. Good narrator, Gen, that's G-E-N. Uh, or you can follow the podcast Voice of All MTG. Uh, either way, the Twitter for one will lead to the Twitter of the other. Gen, would you be so kind as to read out the favorite footnote? It's amazing how good governments are, given their track records in almost every other field, at hushing up things like alien encounters. 
One reason may be that the aliens themselves are too embarrassed to talk about it. It's not known why most of the space-going races of the universe want to undertake rummaging in Earthling underwear as a prelude to formal contact, but representatives of several hundred races have taken to hanging out unsuspected by one another in rural corners of the planet and, as a result of this, keep on abducting other would-be abductees. Some have been, in fact, abducted while waiting to carry out an abduction on a couple of aliens trying to abduct the aliens who were, as a result of misunderstood instructions, trying to form cattle into circles and mutilate crops. The planet Earth is now banned to all alien races until they can compare notes and find out how many, if any, real humans they have actually got. It is gloomily suspected that there is only one who is big, hairy, and has very large feet. The truth may be out there, but the lies are inside your head. <laughs> That's all for this time. Next month, we're going to be going back to the City Watch for Jingo. Until the next one, the turtle moves.